Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, cult, and current films and the people that made them. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film history one memory at a time. We are truly honored to have as our guest tonight a director, writer, producer, and playwright, the founder of the American Film Institute, the creator of the AFI Life Achievement Award and the Kennedy Center Honors, the producer of the terrific documentary, George Stevens, A Filmmaker's Journey, as well as Terrence Malick's epic war film, The Thin Red Line, and so many other projects. In fact, it's hard to discuss the history of Hollywood without him. He's also the author of his newly released autobiography, My Place in the Sun. Welcome George Stevens, Jr. Well, thank you, Steve. What a nice introduction. I could go on and on, but I think uh, uh, we've got to do the interview. I hate to have to type your resume. It would probably take a week. Um, <laughs> it's um, it's a total pleasure to speak with you. Um, we're going to jump right in and talk a little bit about your dad's World War II history, because when I saw your documentary and saw that color footage that he's shot, it was kind of stunning for me because as we know, World War II for the most of us was a black and white war. What, could you tell me a little bit about um, his motivation for bringing color uh, film to Europe? I mean, obviously that wasn't a usual thing. Oh, it's interesting. Um, just to the, the frame of it, when I was what, 10 years old, my father, age 37, uh, was finishing The More the Merrier at Columbia Studios. Uh, and he ran Lini Riefenstahl's The Triumph of the Will, the film about the uh, great, the, the, the organization of Hitler, this fantastic footage, a work of art, though an unpleasant one. And he decided that night that he couldn't stay in Hollywood and be on the sidelines. Um, and he joined the army, got a commission <clears throat> and became head of the combat photography for the war in Europe. Um, and, uh, and so he was overseas all of this time. And from time to time, a yellow box, a Kodachrome box would arrive at our house. Uh, the film of my father's unit, the special coverage unit under Eisenhower, uh, called the Steve, became known as the Stevens Irregulars. And, and one night, more you know, in recent times, I, a guy came up to me in Kate Mantellini and introduced himself. And he said, I knew your father in World War II he said, I was in charge of supplies in London. The Stevens Irregulars in the army shot all 35 millimeter black and white film. Um, and this guy says, I got a ton of Kodak color film here. Do you want me to send some over to you? <laughs> and he sent these, this Kodak color film that was the kind that you'd shoot very high quality and in a cassette in a 16 millimeter camera. And we used to do it for home movies. 
and it was called reversal film. And you'd then send the, the, this negative, this cassette to Kodak, and they would send you back a print made from the same material. I don't know how they did it, but it, it happened to be tremendously high quality film. And so he kept getting this color film and had it in his Jeep or his weapons carrier. And uh, the guys would pass around the color 16 millimeter camera and shoot this extraordinary film of this black and white war. And, uh, and that's kind of the story of it. And I made a film, uh, which is available, I think, on lots of places called George Stevens D-Day to Berlin, which is the story of the special coverage unit. Yes, and I, I have to tell you that when I saw the footage for the first time, it just um, had a stunning impact. Because I've, I've been a student of World War II since most of my youth. In fact, when I was growing up in the 50s, we had World War II comics. We had World War II movies. We yeah. had World War II books and uh, television shows. And one of the first shows I watched was Vic Morrow in combat every week, you know, Saving Private Ryan every week. Uh, so I, I just I, I always study that and I was able to make my first World War II movie back in 2002. I did a, a movie called Silent Night for the Hallmark Channel based on a true World War II incident in which German and American combat troops were in a cabin in the Ardennes and a woman held a truce for 12 hours. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was a great story. We got Linda Hamilton to play the lead and she was terrific. Um, now, another incident involving your father is another thing that I've studied at length, which is the situation involving the Screen Directors Guild and your dad, George Stevens, teaming up with Joe Mankiewicz and taking on Cecil B. DeMille. You were about 18 years old when this happened. Do you have memories of that period, of the period of the McCarthy period and how it impacted Hollywood? Oh, I do. And it's, it, as you know, it's a, it's a significant chapter in my place in the sun. Um, and it just happened that I was home from Occidental College on a Saturday. And my father said, let's take a round, ride down to the Directors Guild. And it was the beginning of that story. He went to the Directors Guild offices at Crossroads of the World on Sunset Boulevard. And I remember I stayed in the car watched him go in and he looked through the windows. The guild was supposed to be open on Saturday and it was closed and the phone wasn't answering. And it was the beginning of this Cecil B. DeMille push to try and throw Joe Mankiewicz out as leader, as president of the guild. Uh, Joe Mankiewicz, a Republican, recruited for De by DeMille for the job. Um, because Mankiewicz uh, didn't want the entire guild to have to sign a loyalty oath. So I will not tell the story because it's a long one, but it's a fascinating. Well, let me give a little bit of con context for the listeners yeah. who don't know the story. Basically, in 1950, as George points out, um, Cecil B. DeMille, the great father of Hollywood, um, uh, decided that they need a new blood in the guild, so that he arranged for Joe Mankiewicz to be elected as president, figuring he'll go along with all of uh, DeMille's policies. DeMille, uh, during this McCarthy period, which had started a few years earlier with the Hollywood 10, 
had decided that the Screen Directors Guild should be clean of all communist influence. So he thought of the idea of a mandatory loyalty oath. And he assumed that Joe Mankiewicz would go along with that. Well, Joe did not want to go along with that. I remember the dialogue, I think it was, that in the uh, one of the meetings he said to Cecil B. DeMille, uh, we're a talent guild, we're not a State Department determining loyalties. So he left it alone and went off to Europe after he filmed All About Eve. And he found out while he was gone, DeMille organized the vote behind his back. And all of a sudden, uh, Mankiewicz comes back and says to DeMille, you, you, you've created a blacklist at the Director's Guild. And DeMille said, what? And yeah, you had a vote. What was it, 540 to 32? Well, I, I don't think those 32 names are going to remain anonymous very long. So a war breaks out between DeMille's faction, which were very conservatives, very conservative directors. And of course, uh, Mankiewicz had people on his side like Kazan, uh, Billy Wilder, William Wyler, and of course, your dad. And thank God for George keeping that notebook. Yes. Yeah. So you you were there at the guild uh, the day he drove down there to see if they could get a list of the guild members so they could call a meeting, correct? Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and it was a, it's just a fascinating story and uh, it, it ended up the right way. And uh, my father had been president of the guild before he went into the war and had strong feelings about it. <clears throat> Do you remember Joe Mankiewicz? Having not met the man, I, I'm just wondering, do you have memories of Joe? I do. He, he was a, a witty, uh, a rather complicated figure and a very talented director. Very interesting period. Father, father of Ben Mankiewicz, a grandfather of Ben Mankiewicz, uh, who uh, people see on Turner Classic Movies. Well, you'll be interested to know that when I was at Showtime, I read an article in the LA Times by Richard Brooks. And Richard Brooks talked about this incident in an LA Times article and that it would make a good movie. So I actually hired Don Mankiewicz, uh, who is, uh, I think he's Joe's nephew. Mm -hmm. uh, and he wrote a draft. We didn't get it made because Showtime suddenly decided they didn't want to make movies anymore. They only focused on series, but I still consider that a great period. Um, now, what's interesting about your career, George, is that you go from Hollywood to Washington and you really go back and forth quite a bit, although you spend most of your time in Washington between Hollywood and the political sphere. It, it seems like there's a great deal of similarity between the dynamics of Hollywood and the dynamics of Washington. Uh, was was what when you went to Washington to work for the U.S. Information Agency? Did you were you were you um, uh, intimidated by being the newcomer in that town? You know, it's so interesting. Um, I was for the your viewers. I I had served in the Air Force and and then uh, started a career. At, I started directing at twenty five. And, and had the opportunity, working with Jack Webb and had the opportunity to direct Peter Gunn and uh, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. And then my father asked me to work with him on the Diary of Anne Frank. And when we completed that, we were gonna start the greatest story ever told, um, which he did. But uh, Edward R. Murrow asked me to come to Washington in the beginning of the Kennedy administration 
and run the uh, motion picture division of USIA, telling America's story abroad. Um, and, and at first I said I couldn't do it. And then my father said, I think you may have to do it, you know. Uh, and he was really making a, a recommendation for me. You know, I think he thought I might get out from under his shadow, which I didn't consider a shadow. And so I had this great experience of working with Murrow and President Kennedy and um, and uh, now your question was, uh, well, did you find Washington yeah. intimidating? Yeah, well, I, you know, I should have, but, you know, as an agency, I think of 12,000 people and I was running one of its principal divisions and I was 29 years old when I showed up. But Murrow had such confidence in me and I had had such experience um, working alongside my father and, you know, and seeing his example uh, that I, th I think leadership kind of came easily to me. And uh, uh, I just really fell into the flow of it, gained great respect for the civil servants who were in the agency and worked well with them. Um, and, uh, no, it was a great time and, uh, I enjoyed it and, uh, you know, we accomplished a great deal. The concept of using motion pictures to explain policy and to show America's good side around the world sounds very logical and practical. To your knowledge, were other countries doing the same thing? I mean, obviously we're sending all this positive, uh, film to the to Europe, do you do you know whether the Russians were trying to do the same thing? They were. They weren't as good at it. They were heavy-handed. The Brits did a lot of it, um, and uh, uh, but it was a you know a fundamental part of our foreign policy. Radio, um, the Voice of America, the radio around the world. We made three hundred documentaries a year in the film division. There was. A, uh, uh, began a television division and press. So it, it was a substantial enterprise and they phased it out in, in um, 1990s, late 90s. And I think we miss it greatly today uh, when we need to communicate with the world. I just got an email from Al Hunt, the former editor, the writer of the Wall Street Journal, uh, saying, don't we need a USIA for the Ukraine to explain to the world the importance of our being in that and, and having a coalition? So. Uh, do, you, um, do you believe that the, the demise of the USIA film division was due to the rise of the internet? Um, I, th I think there was a number of things. There was a negotiation with Jesse Helms about the United Nations. And Jesse had, Helms had great influence over the USIA budget and he wanted it to go away. And I think people were thinking, well, gosh, we, there's CNN now. We don't have to do any more of that. But mm -hmm. it, it really, next thing you know, you've got 9-11 and we need to communicate with the world. And we've got the Muslim situation 
where we could have been explaining ourselves and, and you know, two Muslims and uh, gaining greater understanding. Sure, so, sure. Um, in your book, you describe that after John F. Kennedy was assassinated, there was an effort to explain Lyndon B. Johnson to the world and that a film was made about LBJ. Now, I was doing research for another book of mine on The Twilight Zone, the great Rod Serling TV series, and I read somewhere that Rod was working on that film, although you don't mention it in the book. Does that ring a bell at all? No, he didn't work on that. He didn't work on that film. Okay. No. It was a film we made, uh, rather interesting, you know, after the assassination, you know, we were, gosh, you know, kind of that afternoon our world fell apart and i went in the next day to usia or went in that afternoon and then asked to see ed murrow the next day and uh to kind of figure out what i'm supposed to be doing right now and uh and i had an idea and i went in to see murrow and he just had an operation for lung cancer and he didn't have on his Savile Row blue suit. Um, he had on a, 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 a green cardigan sweater, I remember. Um, and Ed never sat behind his desk. He'd, he'd walk in the office and he sits opposite, opposite you. And he handed me a letter without it saying anything, you know, on this kind of morning, what do you say? And I looked at the letter and it was addressed to on White House letterhead to Ed Murrow. And it said, Dear Ed, uh, uh, I'm glad to hear that you're back with us. We missed you and I hope you're recovering well. I saw The Five Cities of June last night. It's a film we made that included Kennedy's famous trip to Berlin in 1963. He said, I think it's one of the, it's one of the best documents government documentaries I've ever seen. Congratulations. Look forward to seeing you keep up the good work. Well, to read that letter that was in his hands six days before was so moving. Um, and particularly, you know, on that day, and I handed the letter back to Ed, and he put up his hand and pushed it back to me and said, you made the film, you keep the letter. Um, which tells you a lot about Edward R. Murrow. And then I made my pitch. I said, I think it's time to make USI's first, first, sorry about that. I think it's time for USI to make its first feature length documentary. And I said, we have cameramen with color film in seven foreign countries. We can film the whole funeral four days and integrate footage of Kennedy's presidency within it and show it around the world. And Ed thought quietly, furled his brow, and he looked at me and he said, first, make a 10-minute film about Lyndon Johnson. It was wisdom meeting youth. And he said, then you can make your Kennedy film. And we made both. And the Kennedy film was called John F. Kennedy, Years of Lightning, Day of Drums, Day of Day of Drums. which was named one of the 10 best films of the year 
by the National Film Board. Um, but we made the one about Lyndon, went into the Oval Office and filmed him um, three nights later. He was just new into the office and had it finished in four weeks and showed it around the world. Bruce Hershenson uh, wrote and directed it. Um, and so, you know, that was just an example of how, uh, you know, effective those films could be. Sure, sure, of course. I remember uh, doing some research once on the making of PT-109, which Warner's brought out at that time. And I know that Kennedy was in charge of determining who, I don't know if he was in charge, but he was given meaningful consultation to determine who would play him. And I think that uh, Cliff Robertson got that job. Uh, do, you, do you remember seeing that movie at the time? Well, I write about it in the book. Um, you do. Um, yeah, I met Kennedy eight days after arriving in Washington. And... Um, at a big party that Eunice and Sergeant Shriver gave, uh, President's sister and Sergeant Shriver, who started the Peace Corps um, for a diplomatic couple. And um, Kennedy came in late and I met him. And, and, and when I was introduced, he said, well, I know about George. And I was surprised by that. And uh, he said, I have something I wanted to talk to you about. Well, what he wanted to talk me to, to me about, which happened later, was PT-109. And I write about it in the book in that circumstance and about not, not only choosing an actor, but uh, the selection of a director. Um, and uh, so it, it, it is in my place in the sun. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I interviewed um, Brian Foy back in the 70s. And Brian Foy was the guy who fired Lewis Milestone, which I think really hurt that production. I think it would have been a whole different movie if Lewis had stuck with it. Um, it's interesting because the Directors Guild had an auction of Lewis Milestone's possessions. And I got a copy of the Donovan book, uh, which the movie's based on, and it had all of his notes in it. I kind of wish that milestone had stuck with it. I, I, Leslie Martinson was a very good television director, but I thought the movie could have used milestones um, sensibilities. Yeah. And, and, you know, milestone uh, wanted to get out of it. I mean, Brian Foy was, they called him the king of the bees, the keeper of the bees at uh, uh, Warner's. And it, it, I had a confrontation with him that's in the book. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, now, going back a little bit, um, and I have another fondness for the Anne Frank story, and I, I know it's very close to your heart as well. Um, I, I was interested to know that you were present with your dad when you met Otto Frank. Yes. So tell us a little bit about that in terms, and I know you write all about it in the book, and it's a fascinating chapter, but what was it? Uh, where, where did you meet him? Was was it in uh, Switzerland or was it in Amsterdam? It was in Amsterdam. Um, my father and I went to Europe uh, his first time back since returning from the war. And when we first went to Dachau, where he shot the film that 
was used as evidence in the war crimes trial of the Germans. And uh, then we went to Normandy and visited the, where he landed on Juneau Beach and then to Amsterdam, you know, in preparation for this film. And <clears throat> we went to a little office downtown and rang the bell and it was opened by this tall man with uh, kind of a bald head and gray hair, very upright, it was Otto Frank, who had served in the German army in the first war and then returned to Frankfurt. And as the anti-Semitism grew, he moved with his family to Amsterdam and started a spice factory um, where they hid in the attic, uh, the Frank family. And he took us inside, introduced us to his wife, new wife, Fritzi. His first wife died at, at Auschwitz, as did his daughters, uh, Anna and Margot at Belsen. And this lovely man, a very warm figure, um, served us coffee and then went to a filing cabinet and took something out of the filing cabinet and put it in front of us took the cloth off and there was Anna Frank's diary. Um, in fact, I have a picture of me with it in the book. Um, and it was just so moving to see this with the pictures she pasted in it in her handwriting. Um, and then he took us to the hiding place, the roof of this building on the Prinzengracht. Now, um, but at that time, at that time, it was not a museum yet. It was just an empty building, correct? empty building and the three of us went into this empty building and climbed the stairs to the top and went behind the what would have been the bookcase and went into the room where they main room where the, of the hiding place and there were spaces on the wall where you saw where pictures had been hung and my father asked him and he told us about the day the green police and nazis came and uh he said they found his briefcase and they shook everything out on the floor, lots of papers and money and jewelry, and they gathered the jewelry and the money. And they left the papers and herded them out to the wagons to take them away. And of course, the papers were Anna's diary. And they left the evidence you know, that this girl would write a book that would become 70 million copies and and out and become more important than all the ravings about Adolf Hitler. So, yeah. Of, of the 6 million Jews who were killed in World War II, she is the face of those 6 million in many ways. And uh, That's true, yeah. Um, now, they, uh, your dad acquires the rights to do the movie and you, um, I read in your book, you, you're very specific about this extraordinary set that was built on the Fox lot. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I thought it was quite fascinating that they built the multi-floors. Yeah, it was built, they built this attic. It was a five-story five building, I think, or um, four in the attic. And, you know, and, and this picture was going to be very much interior. And uh, my father wanted to give it some scale, really, and uh, and and so we were able to. The hiding place was on the top floor, 
we were able to, on a crane, go from the factory, the spice factory, up floor by floor by floor by floor, and and to find the people in hiding and down when necessary. And you had so we had that side view of the, uh, and then we rebuilt the main hiding place on the ground floor um, on springs. Uh, and so when, uh, instead of shaking the furniture, when the bombers came over, the whole goddamn thing would shake. Uh, and and, and the, most of the film was shot on, you know, on that one set. What are your memories of that extraordinary cast? Uh, like, what do you remember about uh, Millie Perkins, who played Anne? Well, Millie was 17, um, and uh, uh, she had, had no experience at all uh, acting. Um, and my father had confidence in her, and uh, and she was she she is a lovely uh, person. I'm in touch with her on occasion, and. Uh, and Joseph Schilkraut was, of course, from the old school, an Austrian, um, and uh, uh, Shelley Winters uh, was in the film, and, and wonderfully, Ed Wynn, the old fire chief vaudeville comic, played Dr. Dussel, very, one of those uh, situations where the talent of a comedian becomes so touching, you know, the kind of soul. And so it was a fine cast. Well, I was interested to read also that you were tasked with going to Amsterdam to have some exterior sequences shot to, to broaden out the film as well. And I remember all those sequences very well. Mm. Um, um, tell us a little bit about dressing Amsterdam. Now this is, I guess, 1958, 59. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're tasked with bringing the Nazis back to Amsterdam. Yeah. Uh, that must have been a little challenging, I would think. Well, it was, it, it was yeah, it was, it was challenging and it was, it was, it was very satisfying to do it because we did it. I had Jack Cardiff, the wonderful cinematographer, um, and he was such a great collaborator and so talented. Um, but you know, when we had a German band, you know, with trombones and all in uniform marching down a street, well, these people, you know, the war was what, over 10 years plus, um, you know, and suddenly to see all these people in Nazi uniforms was uh, very fascinating for the Amsterdamers. Sure, sure. Um, and I think you say in the book that uh, Jack had never shot a black and white film. <laughs> he, he, he announced that to me on the night and took me to dinner on the announced night before we started shooting. He said over a fine bottle of Bordeaux, George, I think there's one thing I should tell you. I've never shot a frame in black and white. It, it, he, he, he came up through the Technicolor process and, and, and became a cameraman and Black Narcissus and, you know, all so many, uh, the red shoes. Uh, but he just never had reason to shoot in black and white. And he obviously was very good at it. <laughs> I think he had just come off working with Kirk Douglas and Tony Curtis on The Vikings, which I think was shot somewhere in those fjords. Uh, 
yeah no no he's a terrific cameraman um so the the, the i believe you shot mostly at night correct to uh to establish some of the, yes. the walking along the canal streets and when those 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 security guys are coming by yeah yeah and then the the green grocer being taken away by the nazis from up the point of view of the um uh, the from the hiding place yeah now there is one sequence which is one of Anne's dreams where she's dreaming about her friend and she's in a a group of of Jews that are being escorted to the train station. Was that something that was shot on the lot or did you shoot that? Yes, no, that was shot on the lot. Mm -hmm. That was shot on the lot. Got mm -hmm. it, got it. Um, well, I have to tell you that um, there's a sequence in the movie where Anne is introduced to Peter's cat, Mushi. Right. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm listening to this on audio because I have the soundtrack recorded and it inspired a children's book that my friend David Miller and I wrote three years ago. It was published. It's called The Cat Who Lived with Anne Frank. Oh, my God. Oh. And we thought that uh, it was considering there really was a cat. And uh, that my uh, after listening to the sequence in the movie, I said, what did the cat think of these strange people who don't go out ever and tiptoe around during the day? So uh, we're very proud of the little book. And it's inspired an animated feature, which we've been developing. Uh, but I wouldn't. It wouldn't have happened without that film. I mean, it's okay. definitely. Yeah, David Mamet called me, the playwright, some years ago, and he said, "I want to talk to you about that cat." <laughs> and he wrote the most amazing piece. First of all, I think there were fourteen cats. Um, <laughs> there's this one scene where the cat, while the Germans are just outside the door, they they've heard something. They come into the building. They, for the first time, and uh, and everybody's trying to be quiet, and you see this cat jump up on the counter, and go across the the and and put its nose into a funnel, a little tiny funnel, and it's putting its nose into the funnel, and uh, and 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 then uh, and and then it. And funny that it, it it falls off and makes a noise. And uh, Mammoth says, but what made that cat do those uncat-like things? And he wrote this hilarious piece about the cat. <laughs> it's so funny because my daughter went to uh, school with his daughter. And I, I had a chance to ch talk with David. I didn't get a chance to talk with him about the cat. But there is an interesting postscript on the cat because when Meep Geese goes to Gestapo headquarters to try to negotiate the release of the Franks, which obviously doesn't happen. She comes back to the attic, finds all the stuff strewn on the floor, and guess who was sitting on Anne's diary? The mm. cat. Yeah. So it's Mushi's written, actually Anne writes frequently about Mushi, right. um, and it's, it's, it's a great story. Well, uh, years go by and you are suddenly given an opportunity to get back into the Hollywood game. And you are, I'm very interested in, in Terry Malick's movie because right. that was an extraordinary year for World War II movies. The same year was the Saving Private Ryan film from Steven Spielberg. But I was very familiar with uh, James Jones's novel, The Thin Red Line. Uh, I had read it when I was in college. 
And tell us a little bit about how that got to your doorstep a little bit. Um, well, I should probably say that because that was 30 years later um, from the Kennedy time. Right. That, uh, yeah, af immediately after uh, USIA, I um, had the opportunity to found the American Film Institute, right. which became a, a endeavor of of many years. In fact, I'm still involved and serve on the board of AFI. By the way, I, I miss the magazine. I used to put that right on my coffee table every month. It, it, it's that was really that came after that went away after I resigned as director. Right. Uh, but I, 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 it's just a shame. I think it could be such a valuable magazine today and ha have been one all through the years. Um, at the time, that wonderful editor, Hollis Alpert. And Hollis then later, Alpert, sure. Later, and and, and magazines, per se, film magazines have somewhat disappeared. I mean, at the same time as the AFI magazine, there was that wonderful magazine, Premiere, which also covered the film business very right. well, but also gone. I, I, sh I Obviously, for the listeners, I, I, I skipped over. I was going to go back to it. But uh, your desire to offer education as an element for people who wanting to get into Hollywood was rather novel at that time. There were no film schools at any of the colleges per se, were there? No, there were film schools, um, at, in fact, good, uh, good ones at UCLA and USC and NYU and Columbia. Um, but we would, would intended to and did something different. We wanted um, to uh, uh, create a bridge into the profession right. um, more than the, and to, to do a conservatory type where all you're doing is working on the film and the, the crafts rather than, we felt it was important for people to get an education while they're in college so they have something to make movies about. And to a degree, you can do that alongside film, but the, the conservatory concept was new and it's thriving today. I mean, the people who went there at the beginning were Terrence Malick in the first year, uh, Caleb Deschanel, uh, uh, Thomas Rickman, um, Paul Schrader, David Lynch in the second year, and then of uh, these days, um, you know, so many, Darren Aronofsky, uh, I can, uh, um, so many. Um, so it really has proved itself as a, and, and is recently named again, the best film school under Bob Ghazali's leadership. The AFI was originally funded by the government, correct? It was. And did that, but that didn't continue that, that they've had to go to private sources, correct? Yes. Um, it was started in the late period of Lyndon Johnson. Right. And a, a, a no relation, Roger Stevens, who's also the founder of the Kennedy Center, was chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts. And through his leadership, um, AFI was started with Gregory Peck as chairman and me as the founding director. Um, and three years later, uh, 1967, actually a year later, Nixon was elected and everybody assumed Roger Stevens would continue uh, with the work he just started 
that Nixon uh, chose to appoint someone else, um, a woman named Nancy Hanks, and Roger had pledged that 5% of the endowment's budget would be devoted to the Film Institute. And Nancy changed directions. And so we had a real struggle for AFI to survive, which made me stay there long, <clears throat> longer as director than I intended. Well, it seems, it seems clear that if you had <laughs> stayed in LA as a filmmaker, uh, we probably wouldn't never have had the AFI or the Kennedy Center Honors in their current incarnations. I mean, yeah. uh, it's, we were very fortunate that you stayed in Washington. Did uh, You know, I'm constantly pulled by opportunities in Hollywood, you know, just to, to, to investigate things. Were there times when you were living in Washington and you heard what was going on in L.A. that you kind of wished you were back fighting the good fight? No, I felt I was fighting the good fight. Uh, I was, um, you know, I mean, in the early years, I was kind of devoted to getting AFI standing. And, uh, but I also started the AFI Life Achievement Award, which I uh, produced and wrote, which gave me a creative, I did the first 25 of those, um, 12 while I was at AFI and 13 after. Um, so I had a, you know, creative opportunities, um, and uh, you know, and I was here enough that I really liked what I was doing, and gradually I was able to turn that into, uh, you know, um, producing and writing miniseries uh, and documentaries, and have, have a creative life that sure. was satisfying to me. Well, Hollywood is often. Uh wrapped a little bit for patting itself on the back a lot with multiple award shows, et cetera, et cetera. But I never found that the AFI award or the Kennedy Center honors ever had that kind of backlash. It was a kind of, it, it was a touch of class, which I think was probably the best thing that could be done for our business. And I applaud you for doing that. Yeah, well, I, it certainly was what I sought to do with, with, with both of those shows to kind of make them distinctive from um, one of the, uh, sometimes people ask me, among the things you learn from your father, what is the most important? And I often say, um, he taught me respect to respect the audience. And that, that is such an important uh, element to, to trust the audience, not to speak down to it. And you know, I applied that in both the AFI Life Achievement Award and the Kennedy Center Honors. And it really, I think, enabled them to rise above the, the norm. You know, I, I've, I've always been an Oscars tuner. I always tune into the Oscars. It's kind of like a holiday for the family. And the Oscars have been going a bit downhill lately. And I'm curious what you think, if you were tasked with producing the Oscars, uh, are there the things that you would think they should do differently? Like one of the things I thought is they should make it a dinner like it used to be. But I guess when there's 5,000 members of the Academy, all of whom want to come to the, uh, the, the ceremony, it's kind of hard to have a dinner. Yeah. Um, I, 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 the, what I would say in its full dimensions respect the audience. 
And I think it often fails to respect the audience. I think you're absolutely right. I think that, uh, I hope I'm not biting off too much here, but I think that the comedy writing at the Oscars usually tends to be more of a groan than uh, a plus, but uh, we'll go from there. So I want to get back to- I would just say, to finishing that, um, I was a, a wrote, co-wrote the AFI shows and the Kennedy Center Honors. And for collaborators, um, I, after a couple of years, I realized that what you're asking people to say is what the audience should believe they're thinking and not feel that they're doing writer's jokes. So I started using uh, people, Bob Shrum, he was a wonderful speechwriter for Ted Kennedy um, and uh, Don Baer, who was the head of the Clinton White House speechwriting staff. I found people who are used to writing for people, you know, rather than, you know, uh, creating things for them to write with what they might what they might think themselves and it was always very helpful to a Gregory Peck to thoughtful people who came and they're going to pay tribute to someone and they have kind of have their ideas and then to have a, a speech writer just shape them with them and I think that that makes a difference sure sure no absolutely Let's get back to Terry Malick and the red line. So you come back to uh, California, and this is obviously many years later. This is nineteen mid nineteen nineties. How did you get involved in um, in um, in Thin Red Line? Did someone come to you? Well, Terry and I had remained friends. Terry, as you may recall, kind of took a twenty year sabbatical after Badlands and Days of Heaven, and he spent a lot of time in Paris. And we kept in touch. Um, we'd become very good friends um, uh, when he was at AFI. And, uh, and then he came back to the United States. And, uh, he, and I was ta talking with Mike Metavoy about working with him, who was running uh, Phoenix Pictures. And we met with Terry, who was also a good friend of Mike's. And Terry had written this script of the Thin Red Line. Uh, and one thing led to another. And uh, when we made the picture in Australia. It's, you know, it's it's a terrific film. It's a very unusual film. It's not a, it's not, well, it's pure Terry because Terry uh, is, uh, loves imagery. And I think that uh, um, I have to say that, um, when you are on Guadalcanal fighting with the soldiers because of the way Terry sets up his shots, you really feel like you're in in a real world because there's so much attention paid to the setting. Yes, it's um, and and Terry has wonderful collaborators. Jack Fisk has always been his pr pr production designer, and John Toll was the cinematographer, and John's, you know. A, a class act and Terry knew the story he wanted to tell and um, and T Terry does not operate the way other people do and uh, it can cause uh, 
frustration on the part of others at times, but uh, he knows what he wants, or he, he knows he wants to find what he wants, and his collaborators work with him. And, and it was a, I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful film. It is a beautiful film. Um, well, listen, George, this has been great. I mean, we could talk another two hours about various aspects of your career. I mean, just the political side. I mean, you, you spent time sitting at dinner with some of the great political figures of, of, of the last 50 years. And I, I must say, when you talk about JFK in the book and those days, and by the way, for the listeners, if you read his book, My Place in the Sun, it's almost like you're getting a, a really interesting behind-the-scenes history lesson of American politics from the time of Kennedy to the time of Obama and beyond. And I thought, I, I, I not being as well-versed in the political side of things, uh, I found that to be the fascinating part of the book for me particularly because I, I felt like I was getting a bit of a bird's-eye look at those, those engagements. And... Uh, you know, Washington has gone through its trauma of late, and it's, I'm sure in many ways, it's a lot different than it was back in 1960s. Uh, are, uh, without getting into a political discussion, are you hopeful that we can right this country? Are you hopeful? Because you've been there all this time. Um, first, I will, I will say that, um, uh, just one second, I lost my train. Uh, when you were talking about... Um... What were you, how did you, how did you get us into this? Uh... I was talking about how the JFK years were so important. Oh, yeah. Yes, well, Washington has changed and Hollywood is rapidly changing again. Um, but I think, uh, the, uh, the I'm, I'm sorry, I just got to get my thought organized. I think you asked about hope, yeah. Sorry about that. No worries, take your time. We're not rolling 35 millimeter film, we, yeah. we've got... Yeah. We've got digital. We can talk till 2086. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Washington. Yes, Washington has, has changed dramatically, and Hollywood has changed dramatically. Uh, but the subtitle of my book is Life in the Golden Age of Hollywood and Washington. And it really was the, a golden age when I went to Washington. And it was a golden age when I, in my younger years in Hollywood. Uh, and so all of that really, as I think, is what the interaction between those two streams, Hollywood they, working on, on A Place in the Sun and Shane, and then coming to Washington and being involved with seven presidents. Um, it's really the kind of fulfillment of the book. And to your question, um, we are in a really perilous time. I never thought I would ever question the durability of our democracy. 
but I have had to question it lately. And I hope and believe that we will make our way through this, but it is a real task. Uh, and American citizens are gonna have to be part of it. They're gonna have to be more alert and understanding of where we've come from and where we wanna be going. I hear you, I hear you. Um, if your dad was around these days and was hearing about people watching movies in streaming, watching it on their iPhones, I don't think he would be very happy, would he? Well, in one sense, you know, the fact that, 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 there, that it is possible for so many people to be making films, you know, I know that would please him. And certainly he loved the big screen, as do I, uh, and hope that it survives and is very fruitful in the future. Um, uh, but he would, he would love the new technology and all of the new possibilities. You asked me at one point about, uh, you know, that Washington is a tough town and, uh, uh, you know, how coming there at a young age, uh, you know, how I cope with it. And I explained it in part, but I was thinking when you asked that question, my father used to deal with Harry Cohn, you know, and Harry Cohn made a deal with him uh, that he had final cut and Harry Cohn would never come on his set. And Harry was one of the toughest people around Hollywood. And somebody was asking me you know, kind of your question a while back and having dealt with Lyndon Johnson, I said, I don't think it's that much different than dealing with Harry Cohn. <laughs> You know, it's it's interesting. I, I um, being a producer in Hollywood today and being a writer and dealing with the powers that be, I, I come across a tremendous amount of rudeness. You know, people don't return phone calls. You know, I, I, I don't want to sound like a spoiled sport here, but I I just um, I find it sometimes and sometimes I, sometimes I wish I was back in 1958. And where people were more, you know, more civil to each other. But I get the impression that if I went back to 1958, I'd probably deal with the same rudeness. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've been, we've had a terrific discussion today with George Stevens Juniors. You must go out and get his book, My Place in the Sun. It's it's a, a wonderful telling of not only George's tale but the, the the world as it stood at the time, both politically and in Hollywood. I can't say enough about it. And, um, and thank you all for listening to Saturday Night at the Movies, even though we're debuting now on Mondays. I felt that Monday Night at the Movies doesn't have the same ring as Saturday Night at the Movies. Um, as always, I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. George, thank you so much for being with us today and, and just uh, continued good fortune for you and your family. Steve, it was a wonderful conversation and I uh, greatly uh, appreciate it. You're quite welcome.